I hear a ticking yep. noise in the background. Oh, uh, yes. That would be me. Sorry, guys. <laughs> it's okay. That was actually my turn signal. I was just dialing in for a second to tell you that I'm probably not going to be able to join. Oh, that's Dave. Okay. <laughs> and he has a bomb. That was not a nervous tick or a bomb. That was just just to help the harmless turn signal. Okay. Well. At least I we hope. know you're a safe driver. Yeah. This episode is sponsored by Frontend Masters. They have a terrific lineup of live courses you can attend either online or in person. They also have a terrific backlog of courses you can watch, including JavaScript The Good Parts, Build Web Applications with Node.js, AngularJS in depth, and Advanced JavaScript. You can go check them out at frontendmasters.com. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a thousand tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and LA bid on JavaScript developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average JavaScript developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they give you a $2,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the JavaScript Jabber link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept the job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash JavaScript Jabber. This episode is sponsored by Widgmo 5, a brand new generation of JavaScript controls. A pretty amazing line of HTML5 and JavaScript products for enterprise application development in that Widgmo 5 leverages ECMAScript 5 and each control ships with AngularJS directives. Check out the faster, lighter, and more mobile Widgmo 5. This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the provider I use to host all of my creations. All the shows are hosted there, along with any other projects I come up with. Their user interface is simple and easy to use, their support is excellent, and their VPSs are backed on solid-state drives and are fast and responsive. Check them out at DigitalOcean.com. If you use the code JavaScriptJabber, you'll get a $10 credit. This episode is brought to you by Braintree. If you're a developer or manager of a mobile app and searching for the right payments API, check out Braintree. Braintree's new V0 SDK makes it easy to support multiple mobile payment types with one simple integration. To learn more and to try out their sandbox, go to braintreepayments.com slash JavaScript Jabber. Hello and welcome to episode 163 of the JavaScript Jabber podcast. I'm your temporary host, Jameson Dance, and we have with us Amy Knight. Hello. Jeff Morrison. Hey. And Avik Chowdhury. Hey. I have just a quick announcement. A friend and I are organizing a conference called React Rally. It's about React. Uh, the website is reactrally.com, and the call for proposals is open right now. Um, it's open t- until June 21st, so if you want to speak there, we do cover travel and hotel, and we're looking for speakers. We'd love to have you. If you want to attend, we have early bird tickets on sale right now, and the uh, regular tickets should go on sale here in a couple weeks. So please check out the website, reactrally.com. There's links to the call for proposals and links to buy tickets on there. We'd love to see you there. So Avik and Jeff are our guests today. Do you mind introducing yourselves? Sure. Uh, I'm Jeff. I work at Facebook. I work on the Flow team. And I've worked on uh, various other JavaScript things in the recent past. Uh, I worked on sort of React, did JSX stuff for React when it first open sourced. Yeah. Uh, hey, I'm I'm Avik uh, Chaudhuri. I uh, I work at Facebook also uh, on the Flow team. Uh, before this, um, I used to work on ActionScript at Adobe, and before that, I have, I have a academic uh, background. I did a PhD and several other things uh, on on computer security and program languages and so on. So I'm generally interested in language uh, stuff. Awesome. So you did a PhD and several other things. Does that mean a double PhD? <laughs> it means a, a triple PhD after a PhD. I a choose not to like go into all of that. <laughs> Too much detail. I guess a postdoc is kind of a double PhD. So there was a theme with uh, the things that you both talked about, which is flow, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. Do you mind giving a really kind of high-level overview of what flow is for people who haven't heard of it? Sure. Flow is a static type checker for JavaScript. One of its distinguishing characteristics is that uh, it does a lot of type inference uh, using uh, sophisticated static analysis in the background. Uh, so it can figure out a lot of errors without you having to write too many annotations. 
Another distinguishing characteristic is that it's pretty fast. So you can throw it at uh, pretty large code bases. And because uh, we break up the type checking into, uh, into separate chunks and parallelize all of that, and all of this checking happens actually in the background, so that as soon as you save a file, you get, get the checks in the background. And when you ask for results, you immediately get back the results. So we focus a lot uh, on, on performance as well. So yeah, so apart from that, it's it's it looks a lot like uh, other type checkers for JavaScript out there. It uses pretty standard syntax for types, and it gives you back a bunch of type errors. So that's what it is. So you used a lot of words there that I think some people might not have a ton of experience with, especially if, if they're front-end developers who kind of came to JavaScript, and that's most of their programming experience. Do you mind talking about uh, what like static type checking is and, and why that matters to you? So I, I came to Flow from not working on type checkers before, so I guess I have a little bit of context there. Basically, Flow specifically, you can think of as a more complex sort of linter. It looks at your code and it tries to find ways that you're using your code. Uh, it follows literally the, it's called the flow, the flow of your program, and tries to find ways that say you're using variables that aren't safe, that are likely to throw. If you try to add together a number in a string, it's unclear if what you really meant is to turn that number into a string concatenated with the other string, or if you thought that that second variable was a number and you're trying to add two numbers together. So little things like that, that's the gist of sort of flow. Maybe a good basic starting point, just kind of go over the difference between a dynamic and a static language. I know it's a very basic starting point, but... Yeah, uh, sure. So uh, so a dynamic language... Well, all 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 programs ultimately run run dynamically. So, like every every language is almost a dynamic language, except that some languages choose to uh, include a type system in the language that imposes a static discipline as you're coding. So, uh, it enforces things like, okay, you declare a variable, now you have to tell me what that variable's type is, and if you say that it's a number, it's always going to hold a number, and the language is going to check that. Now. At runtime, you can forego all the static checks and do all the checks at runtime. And that that's what a lot of languages like JavaScript or, or Python or various other dynamic languages, so-called dynamic languages do. They, they kind of defer all those checks at runtime because ultimately you are going to compile the program into machine code and it would be really bad if at the machine code level you wanted to do some, some kind of string operation on, on a machine integer. But now a lot of languages can do these checks statically, which means that they have to statically reject a lot of programs that would otherwise run fine at runtime. But the gain is that now they can use this. Uh, well, first uh, benefit is that you catch a lot of us early on during a development process. But uh, some other languages actually go further and then exploit uh, the benefits of these checkings to completely eliminate dynamic checks at runtime so that you get performance benefits and so on. In general, types are are great for catching errors at least, or helping you maintain your code uh, as your code base grows. So we view types as kind of a sidekick to a language, not really completely integrated into the language, but as a tool to help programmers write correct programs and check various kinds of errors early on and provide many of the benefits that uh, classic statically typed languages uh, would provide. I like how you put it as uh, viewing types as a tool to help programmers. I think for me, the benefit of types is that it makes explicit in the code a lot of the assumptions that you have about the code that are just in your head. So if you have a function that takes an argument and you know that this argument is going to be an object that has three properties with these names because you use them that way inside the function, you can declare a type that has those three properties and say this function takes a thing that looks like this. And if you pass in anything that doesn't look like this, it's just going to give you an error. So it kind of gives you more certainty. Instead of just hoping that everyone who uses your function passes in the correct thing, you have some tool that tells people this is what the object you pass in needs to look like, kind of. It's really nice because you wind up with sort of, it's it's documentation, right? But it's enforced documentation. So you, you kind of don't have this, it's, it's, a, it's a class of documentation where if you, you write it and then as your code changes, it continues to be verified. So if your document, if that particular documentation gets out of date, you know, pretty quickly. I was going to say the same thing, Jeff. 
One other question I have about it. So people kind of say, like, that's the job of unit testing. So why use something like Flow on top of unit testing? That's a pretty good question. We, we get it a couple times, too, a lot, too. I think our general perspective on this is that it couples well with unit testing. The two go together. So there's a class of things that you can use a type checker for to catch things without you saying much, except perhaps these levels, these certain amounts of documentation that you choose to write anyway. And these things are the kinds of things that flow and type checkers are built to help you catch. But then there's a set of things that are more high level and advanced. It's like, well, I want to set, say that this function properly adds these two values together in the way that I expected or, or does this like these higher level sort of operations. Those are the more explicit things that you need unit tests for. And I think a lot, a lot of times uh, it's easy to sort of forget that they're both really useful. They're both kind of just ways of sort of holding your program in your hand and turning it from different angles and looking at it and trying to find bugs. Yeah. One more thing I want to add is that no one strategy, uh, I, I think Jeff was alluding to the same thing. No, no one, no one strategy is going to be enough, right? So, so testing has a lot of advantages over typing in that it can go really deep and assert things that type checker doesn't even know how to, how to check. But at the same time, it is limited by coverage. So you have to explicitly know you, you, if, you, if your tests don't cover all your code paths or you have not set up your context properly so that it can exercise all of the code paths that could be exercised, then you possibly have, you are missing errors. And on the other side, static type checking is like an approximation in the other direction. It's almost over approximating all, all the things that can happen in a program. So it's trying to be super conservative. And again, you, uh, you, it can possibly reject programs that could be perfectly fine. Uh, so you don't want static type checking for everything as well. So so both of those have their benefits. And as Jeff said, they, they kind of play together. And we, of course, use both. Um, yeah, one other thing that occurred to me as you, were, as you were talking about that is, so I used to work on our test system, Jest, at Facebook. And one sort of constant battle when working on Jest and, and probably any test system is trying to find ways of making those tests fast. So when you're when you're executing code like in a test, you have to execute the code. And so as slow as your code that you're executing is, as slow as your tests are. Uh, with static type checking, you have the ability to kind of take out some of the some of those simpler tests that you would have to actually execute code for and formalize them into this static checker that's that's gonna be a little faster. Avik, I think you mentioned some things earlier about kind of the gradual typing stuff that Flow does. I think um, some people might have experiences with languages like Java or, or Golang or C++ where you kind of, you, your program has to be typed, like every variable has to have a type. And and Flow is a little different because you can have parts of it untyped and, and only add types in when you want to later. Can you talk a little bit about that? So yeah, as you said, types in Flow are completely optional. Uh, one of our main design goals was that Flow should never get in the way of, of a JavaScript programmer's workflow, right? So if, if they know that they are doing the right thing, uh, we don't want a type checker to pedantically point out that there is a mistake when there is none. So from very early on, we, we provided multiple ways in which you could shut off Flow, uh, make, it, make it shut up. So there are lots of handles you can do. So one one very brutal thing you can do is not not bring in a file uh, into Flow. Uh, so if you choose to have type checking, you have to very explicitly add um, something called at Flow in a comment header on on top of a file, and only then would Flow even begin looking at the rest of the code inside the file. Well, it would parse the code, but not much else. But even inside the type system, uh, suppose you have type checked most of the code in a file but there is one corner where you're doing something completely crazy and it doesn't look very crazy to you, but it looks crazy to, to flow and it kind of throws a lot of wild errors. And you do maybe some testing on the side or some reasoning on the side and you are completely convinced that the code is correct. So there are multiple ways in which you could actually say that, uh, okay, flow shut off at, the, at this point. So for example, you can use this type called any that we have. Uh, and you can use it to type anything, and it will literally just stop propagating constraints through that location. So uh, anything that you write to that variable and any other uses of that variable are completely disconnected. So that means that you won't get type errors. 
so yeah so this this form of gradual typing is the idea is not new it it appears in a whole bunch of other languages as well uh, we adopt it uh, completely because what we're trying to do is like provide some benefit to programmers but not at the cost of completely blocking them if if they know what they're doing is fine i think i i mentioned golang is one of these statically typed languages but go has type inference um, does that mean Flow has type inference as well, in addition to these features that allow you to turn off the type checking? Yes. So this is this is another very nuanced kind of interesting point that you brought up. So in a lot of traditional graduate type languages, what happens is you have to explicitly type everything in order to then only do checking for, for those parts of the system that have annotations. And anytime you leave out an annotation, the implicit assumption is that, well, it's a whole wide, like, wild world. You you don't know what you were doing, uh, so I'm not going to do any checking there. Whereas what we try to do is, yes, we have type inference, which means that if you leave out a type, uh, we would actually try to infer a static type for it. So so it's kind of, it hits a middle ground where you can tell Flow to go away if if you don't want it. and uh, But once you buy into Flow, it does a lot of stuff without you asking it, like you, without you having to like nudge it along with, with annotations and so on. And again, Go and uh, various other languages before that, for example, ML is the language in which Flow is written. All of that family of languages that have been around for a long time also do type inference. A lot of these systems, in the process of doing type inference, they have to limit themselves to various languages of types that are tractable and so on. So a lot of design goes into this space as well. So it's hard to compare one language against the other when you're talking about what kind of types you can infer in, in these languages. So Flow, Flow does something that is very appropriate for JavaScript. Uh, Go does uh, whatever Go requires. Uh, but yeah, the idea of combining type inference with a gradual type language is pretty interesting because it kind of, it's a sweet spot in the design space. There's another interesting aspect to this, like sort of gradually specifying types, the ability to do that at different levels. And that is, it lets you decide when, for example, you want to spend time documenting something like we talked about earlier and enforcing those documentations versus not. So if you're quickly prototyping something, you may or may not want to spend time writing docs because you may or may not throw that code away. But, um, you know, that, that's kind of like an important aspect and tenet of uh, gradual typing, I think, as well. Yeah, that makes sense. I feel like the effect in practice of Flow's gradual typing and, and type inference is that you kind of surround parts of your program with types and then anything inside those parts get all the benefits of it without you having to do the work, which is really nice. Exactly, yep. So I asked on Twitter before this about uh, if, if people had questions, and there were lots of questions. Several of the questions fell into the theme of how do you keep up with the changing stuff in JavaScript? So when you are working on Flow, you have to explicitly support every feature of JavaScript. And as new things have come in from ES6 and JS 2015 or whatever it's called now, like some of that stuff you can't use yet in Flow. How, how do you reconcile those things? Yeah, so I can speak to this a little bit. So honestly, one of the best ways is that it's kind of our job to keep up with it. So I sit with Sebastian and, and a couple others on TC39. We go to the meetings and kind of keep up with the changes and consider those changes as they come up so that we can kind of get a head start on how we're going to fit them into something like Flow and our tooling. But yeah, it's definitely a challenge to keep up with these things, especially as like we're flow is kind of in a still it's like we open sourced in November. So we're still like getting our baseline core typing stuff, you know, getting the design solidified there. So adding new features has been like sort of doing it as people ask for it. We added support for ES6 modules over the last couple of months and have been solidifying that. Uh, we're work, I think, so we have uh, we have an open source contributor right now. Uh, Sam G is his GitHub name, but he's been working on LetConst, which has been awesome. And uh, I think we're going to have four of support soon. And those are like, I think those are three of our like most top asked ES6 features so far. Another aspect of like keeping up with this stuff is the compilation part. The thing that like stuff like Babel takes care of. Babel, sorry. I think it's sure. Babel. I don't know how to say it. <laughs> I think he said you say it. I just I type it. Sebastian said you say it like an Australian would say it is what he said. <laughs> um, so Babel. 
So they've been doing this pretty awesome job of keeping up with new features, features that are in the spec, features that aren't in the spec yet, but they're experimental. And Flow kind of from the beginning has kind of taken an approach where it's more of an analysis tool than a compiler. So Flow itself, like the tool, the binary that you get when you use Flow, will just read code and spit out errors. It doesn't do compilation. Um, Instead, you use Flow on your code and then you use a, a tool like Babel uh, or we have like an internal one that we're trying to move away from and towards Babel. But any of these transpilers, these open source transpilers can sort of take the bits that are not like the type annotations and strip them away for you. So they're kind of decoupled in that sense. That's a good point, though. I guess we didn't say that explicitly that when you when you write code for flow, you put stuff in your JavaScript that the browser or the or node or whatever runtime you're using isn't going to understand. So you have to use something to pull that out. That's right. We try to we try pretty hard to minimize that, obviously, but you know sometimes it's useful. Yeah, so I I use it with Babel. Babel, I'm saying it wrong now, and it's pretty seamless. Uh, related to that ES6 question, the number one specific feature people asked about was generators, and that's a thing I bug you a lot in IRC about too. <laughs> yeah. Is there a timeline on that, or is there an amount of money attached to that, <laughs> or? <laughs> so. Currently, somebody on the team, I think as of this week, decided to pick up async await. And I haven't put much thought into how much it would take to do generators as well. But I think async await has been sort of the primary like means by which people want. I don't know if I worded that properly, but you know what I mean. I think a lot of the asks for generators seem to have come from things like for, for things like task.js. So we were hoping that async await would would uh, would handle a lot of those cases. But yes, generators are something that we really need to get to. So it sounds like two weeks? Can I? <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. The default programmer timeline estimate when you, you should, don't know how long it takes. You, should, uh, <laughs> you and anybody listening should go find the GitHub task and, and, and mention your, your desire for it so we can make it loud. That seems to be our, our best uh, driver for these things. It's like how many people are asking for it, so... So one to note here is that some of this work is mostly parser work plus only a bit of work on the on the type checking side. So not not modules. Modules were like a pervasive change to the to the type system. But things like generators or async away, they under the hood they rely on promises which we already support. So the hope is that feature-wise, they would just desugar to calls to the promise API, and the rest of the work is uh, recognizing these these in the in the parser, and routing the calls appropriately. So overall, in the grand scheme of things, it's not a lot of work, but we still need to like prioritize them somehow. I'm just yeah, laughing to myself when you say not a lot of work because you have a PhD in computer science and I think your standard for not a lot of work is probably different from mine. <laughs> if you just handed me the generators feature and we're like, all the pieces are there, you can figure it out, then I would go be a lumberjack instead of program. <laughs> <laughs> I think we get these questions a lot. It's like, when are we going to get like, you know, this and that? And um, I think we want to get to all of them. It's just a matter of prioritization, really. So, one of the things that we're really working, like we spend most of our time on right mm-hmm. now, mm-hmm. is like the really high requested ES features, ECMAScript features. But also the other things we're working on are improving the general sort of design of the type system. So uh, we want to continue to improve like gradualness. So you can sort of do get as much out of the type system as you can with as little work as possible. So like that's kind of one high level goal that we have for right now. And then uh, typing React is also a really big sort of thing we're spending a lot of time on as well. Yeah, we and didn't even Perf, talk about that at all. Perf is also something that we're working on too. We want to get flow like as fast as we can get it. Yeah, and also like the core core part of the the type system, as Jeff was saying, that that's still being solidified, and that's like work, spending some time working on those uh, those general things is actually worth it because it makes adding new features. Uh, much faster, right? So if if you have to like reinvent the wheel and like reimplement a large chunk of the type system every time you're faced with implementing a new feature, that's not such a great thing. But some of that cost can be amortized by by thinking ahead of you know okay, so what what general 
uh, facility does flow lack right now, which we, if we implemented would enable the implementation, fast implementation of many other features. So yeah, so again, it's it's a matter of priorities. We are kind of a small team who are like uh, trying to do lots of things at the same time. So some of these features kind of get pushed, even though we we want them earlier. So you started talking a little bit about implementing stuff in Flow. How do you work on a type system like this for a language that already exists? Is it is it similar to if you were just building a programming language from scratch or, or what are the pieces there? So we have set up the type system to be kind of almost extensible in some ways, at least the typing rules. So typically what happens when you're about to implement a feature is you have to do some work in the parser to the extent that part of the grammar does not completely interfere with other things in, in, in the language, that, sh- that should not be a, a too much work. But sometimes it does interfere with a lot of other constructs. So even parsing becomes a big deal. And then once once you do that, all you have to do is like walk that part of the AST. Everything else is already wa- walked. So you add a case for the new feature that you are trying to implement. And you have to uh, set up a so-called typing rule which is just like some approximation of what happens at runtime when you hit that construct uh, so again the type system is pretty expressive and most of the time you can find something that you can reuse but sometimes you have to add a new thing and uh, and then you have to implement what his behavior is but it's still kind of localized i would say it's, it's no more different in character than trying to implement a new javascript feature in a browser for example so it, it would involve the same steps it would involve some parsing work and then it would involve laying down what this new construct means at runtime except that now we are just talking about what what should happen at at compile time uh, when you see that construct yeah, that makes sense I could add a bit of context, too, because I came to, this is sort of the first type system I've ever worked on. I worked on some language tools for JavaScript before, but I mean, in general, like the high level way that the flow works is, you know, like Vic said, you start with this parser and you get this syntax tree, this abstract syntax tree, similar to what a lot of the open source compilers like Babel and, and JS Transform and Tracer do now. Uh, so actually, I think there's a lot of people somewhat familiar with that. At that point, you deal with the syntax tree, you run through it and visit it. And Flow basically builds up, while it visits this tree, it builds up these set of like like little bits of knowledge. It says like this variable is assigned to this variable and this function is called with this variable. And there's these individual little tiny bits of information that are kind of put into this set. And then towards the end, it actually goes and it ties all these bits of information together. So when you add this new feature, you first go add support to the parser so you can have the syntax tree. And then you go through the set of code that runs through that syntax tree and collects those bits. And you make sure that the proper bits are collected for, say, if you wanted to build generators. You collect the proper bits of information for generators. You say, like, you know, here we called yield. And this yield is going to return the result of, or sorry, this call to next on the iterator is going to return the result of that yield and so forth. And then, of course, at the end, in this sort of, like, last stage, you go and tie these bits together and you say what it means for this flow as we call it or bit to be combined with that other bit and ultimately you wind up finding cases where a number flows to a string or yeah i might have i don't know how deep that was i might have started <laughs> no, no no that makes sense so so you're kind of like building up knowledge as you trace the execution of the program sort of through the ast right. and right, then exactly. checking it against these types or or things that you've inferred about the program exactly yeah okay that kind of makes sense since we were like sort of talking about ES6 and features you were adding to that, it seems like a popular question that people are asking is why you'd use Flow instead of something like TypeScript. Like I think you guys already answered this, but maybe not explicitly. So it might be helpful to go over that. Yeah. So we started Flow a little while ago, and uh, one of the reasons we started Flow is because we had sort of a bunch of these little bits of like analysis already built on top of JavaScript. And we kind of formalized them together. And that's kind of how Flow came to be. So ultimately, like Flow takes a bit of a different approach than other tools like like uh, Closure Compiler and TypeScript, because it's sort of this data flow oriented technology. But the other thing is that like we wanted to be able to kind of target uh, specific features as well. Like, And so I guess the answer is really, it's kind of, uh, it's whichever one suits your needs. We think that when we build this system, if we can build like a tech, if we can build on this technology that has like 
really good inference support. That's kind of a, a benefit of Flow is you have really good inference support. Yeah. So one thing we we had thought of from the very beginning was that Flow was never going to be limited to being a type checker. What we really wanted to do was have a static analysis tool that would understand JavaScript programs well. Like everything you do in a JavaScript program, all kinds of constructs that you can use in JavaScript, they have a very faithful representation inside Flow. So Flow kind of approximates that statically, but it's still the, the approximation is fairly faithful. So it actually knows a lot about what your program is doing, which is not limited to just traditionally uh, like uh, talking about traditional types like strings and numbers. We mention a lot because they are like the canonical examples of types. But uh, imagine like uh, you have a function. We know which variables you are you are reading and writing in that in that function, where that function is flowing, where it's being attached as a method and which prototypes are being attached to what objects and so on. It has this whole body of knowledge. And at the end, we use this knowledge right now for type checking. But moving forward, we want also wanted to use it for various other static analysis jobs as well. For example, we wanted to integrate this in editors for super easy refactoring. We want to actually do automatic transformations on the code at some point, think about how we can make the code more performant by analyzing the code ahead of time. So there are lot, lots of these other applications that go beyond type checking. So, and at the heart is this type inference algorithm, which is not really just a type inference algorithm, but it's, it's like a general inference algorithm that uh, in which you can encode these bits of information that Jeff uh, talked about. But again, these bits of information are not limited to just type information. You, you have lots of other bits of information that you can also add. And at its core flow is just propagating information from one point to another point by tracking the data flow through the program. So the goals are more or less more ambitious, I would say. Uh, why a programmer might choose flow over TypeScript right now, it's, I, I would claim maybe it would be slightly more convenient for them because they don't have to write as many annotations and they would get more errors with doing less work. But at the same time, we are, we are just starting out. So there's a lot of like lack of polish and flow that people might be used to. So it's it's really up to the programmer to kind of check it out and uh, and see. As you were talking, one thing that occurred to me, like concrete thing, that's like sort of information to make a decision off of. There are a couple of distinct features as well between the two. So for example, Flow takes a sort of a non-nullable by default approach to types. And so this is up to the people who use the type system to make a decision on, but it's a concrete feature. Basically, if you take, for example, a parameter and a function, you could say that every parameter can either be null or it can be the type that you said. Whereas in Flow, uh, we, we've taken the approach that it's never null unless you said that it might be null. Uh, in TypeScript, you'll find that every type is nullable. So every parameter that comes into a function could either be null or the type that was specified. It seems like the behavior TypeScript has is, is common in other programming languages. Like, that's just how it seems to work. And then it's yeah. weird when it doesn't work like that, but it makes a lot of sense kind of when you get used to it. So the inventor of, of this null uh, business was Tony Hoare, who is, of course, the famous programming, uh, like uh, computer scientist. But he, in a recent talk, maybe two or three years back, called this invention his billion-dollar mistake. And <laughs> lots of people have been burned by... Uh, null pointer exceptions and they have caused like you know crashes in space probes and so on so <laughs> so, <laughs> space probes in JavaScript, <laughs> so in the grand scheme of things i think this might be a more recent shift but over the last few years it's pretty clear that avoiding null is a good thing and using nulls as kind of a default value should be a very explicit operation and should never be an implicit thing as is there in most languages. And in fact, interestingly, the Google Clojure compiler also takes this view. So TypeScript is different in, in that sense among the, the more recent uh, kind of tools for JavaScript. But the other reason, uh, which is uh, like more interesting, is that actually like distinguishing between null and other values requires a much much more muscle in the type checker as well. So, for example, it's very easy to say that, okay, we are now going to distinguish numbers and null. But then how would a programmer proceed if he wants, wanted to use null? Well, he could pass in null 
and you could use uh, these nullable types as we have it, which kind of specify that, okay, some, some type is nullable. But then to do any work at all with, with such a parameter, uh, they would have to do null checks, right? And then your type checker has to follow the consequences of null checks in your program. And inside a function block, that means that a variable can change types. It can start off being a nullable number, but after you do the check inside that block, it becomes a number. So, so that's that's like uh, again, it's pretty complicated analysis that you need to do, and uh, that kind of analysis is not typically done in a lot of type checkers. So all of this is so. What what I want to say is that the idea that null was part of every type is kind of an archaic idea. People are moving away from that idea now, uh, having realized that it's a bad idea. To to support it requires a lot of type checking muscles, so it's not very easy to support. So there is some inertia to move existing type systems to kind of be more strict in this space. Flow being a kind of design from scratch from. In, in recent times can afford to do that, but uh, it's an opportunity we basically grabbed, right? So that's where that came from. That's really cool. So I have a, a question kind of related, I guess it's related to the whole topic of flow in general. What do you say to developers who are, are concerned about putting the Java back in JavaScript? Like they just want to get stuff done and, and like build cool front-end applications and adding extra tooling and especially static type checking if they're not familiar with it or if they've used it in the past and hated it seems like painful and like overhead and, and yeah. What do you, what do you say to people like that? Well, I mean, I know I've heard this in actually a couple of contexts. This might be the first time I've heard it in the flow context, but it's fair. And it's, it's a bit of a packed question because it can mean lots of different things. I've heard it mean things like putting classes in JavaScript. Like I've heard that that's one context I've heard of this, but I mean, I guess if we were to break it down, like one intention, I think you could, imagine people meaning is boilerplate is a problem, right? Like Java has lots of boilerplate. Sure. Um, this is definitely one of the core goals that we pay a lot of attention to when we add new features and stuff. We, we try to remove as much ceremony as we can. Um, and that's, we, we already talked a lot about the inference stuff. So that's kind of the purpose of the inference. It's like, if you want to put the type annotations there, you can for checking and for documentation, but you don't have to. In Java, you kind of have to, right? You, you need this stuff for it to even compile and run. And that leads into the second thing, which is like stuff like Java, you have to compile it in order to run it because that's how the language works. It's part of the language. And that's not the case with JavaScript or typed variants of JavaScript that we're working with here. So it's always possible, even if Flow gives you errors, it's always still possible to run your code. So it kind of gets out of your way quickly. And that's like another thing I think people draw parallels to with, with these things is, well, wait a second, I don't want to have to compile my code before I run it. Yeah. Uh, another thing we keep saying whenever we are introducing flow to people, well, one is, yeah, it, it doesn't get into your way in terms of errors and so on. It tries to play along with your existing idioms. If you're writing idiomatic JavaScript, you should be fine, and it's flow's job to figure out what's going on. Uh, but the other, other thing also is, yeah, this this whole like waiting for, for a program to compile is not something that people do in JavaScript. They just edit something and immediately like uh, refresh the browser and see their changes and test it out. And maybe it do doesn't look right and they change something else and then refresh the browser again. So you're used to this fast workflow, right? And that's again, something that we were very, very mindful of when we designed Flow, like doing do this type checking in the background uh, in a server and having the results always ready when you are ready to query uh, them, you should clarify uh, that. So the server, the server client thing about Flow. Oh yeah, we haven't talked about that. Okay, so yeah, so I, I mentioned earlier. I don't know how how much you want to go into this, but yeah, so it's the maybe just kind of like a high level overview. Sure. Okay. So so the way uh, checking works in Flow is that you start up a server. Uh, which looks at and you point it to to some some code base, point it to a directory that has all of your code in it, and uh, well, you could configure all of this. But at a high level, that's that's what's going on. It's it type checks all of that code initially, so that takes maybe some time. That typically takes more time than incremental checks. But that that once that is done, maybe after 10 seconds or 15 seconds or whatever, for small coders, codes that's 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 even less. At that point, the server has all the information it needs about the program, uh, about about your about your code base. And then, when you edit a file, it only does 
the minimum amount of work that is necessary to keep that information up to date. So it knows everything about what the dependencies on these files are. So it will automatically recheck that file and its dependencies and watching the code, uh, watching the code base and, and, and it'll come back to, to the stable state where it knows everything about a code base at that point. So now typically you would, you would keep saving as you're editing or say you switch branches and you bring a bunch of new changes to your, to your file system. You don't have to then type and say, okay, now compile my program and wait for it. Like that thing has already started happening as soon as the files change in the file system. So now when you go and actually ask for type errors, and you could do that through the command line, but also through an editor, you, you say, okay, let me see the errors now. At that point, the errors are already there in the server, and all it does is just sends back that information immediately to the client, and you get red lines on all of your program. So that's that's like a very convenient model, which kind of JavaScript programmers shouldn't have a big problem with because they really don't have to wait for these results anymore. So that's like, that is just one thing that, among the other things that Jeff mentioned, where every time somebody says, please don't turn JavaScript into Java, we, we completely sympathize with those people and we are on their side. So from the very beginning, we never wanted to create a Java where we would impose our own view of what a correct program is and like uh, have that manifest in the type system. No, instead the type system is there to kind of play along with JavaScript best practices and kind of promote them or encourage them while trying to discourage uh, bad programming styles. So it's very tuned to JavaScript. And, and so it's pretty, it's pretty interesting to sit in on like some like occasional just like hallway discussions where somebody will be like, oh, we should do it this way. And no, we should do it that way. And somebody's like, well, what do people do? And then that's the end of the, the end of the conversation. Yeah, like, yeah. That's how people. That's like the idiomatic way of doing it in JavaScript. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, cool. cool. Yeah. So one one small other thing is that people miss this is that Java is the worst example that you can think of of a statically typed language. Like if you <laughs> if you are hurt by Java and you think that that's the canonical example of a statically typed language, that's where people are kind of misled. Because statically type languages have been around for a long time, even before that, in in the ML family and, and every other uh, like language uh, of of you know in, in that realm. And the main difference between those languages and Java is type inputs again. Like it's not as if people deliberately in JavaScript are trying to write unsafe programs. They implicitly have some type invariants in their head. They they just don't want to write them down all the time because it slows them down. And by inferring those invariants that they have in their head as as apparent through their code, we are trying to like do the you know best possible thing in that scenario. And so so yeah, so it, like static typing is again, it's not limiting the expressivity of these JavaScript programmers. They are mostly encouraging what they already do and just like you know formalizing that a little bit. That makes sense. One other argument that I've heard about uh, both TypeScript and Flow, but it seems like it almost applies to Flow more, is that if you're working on a, a large project or with a large team where there's just a lot of code and there's it's too much to keep in your head all at once, it can be really helpful to have these static types, but it can also be way faster to just crank something out with no types just by yourself. And and the nice thing about these gradual type system is is that they support both of those. Like if you just want to hack something together then you can still do it in the same language. And then if you want to kind of add structure around it and make it easier to verify that it's correct, then you can add those types in as your team grows and as you kind of build on this code base that you've started and maybe hack together quickly. Yeah, that's totally true. I mean, another like sort of extension of that is like, sometimes it's nice to, prototyping is like, it's important to be as, as quick as possible, not necessarily as right as possible when you're prototyping. And then it's only when you've sort of established your prototype, right? Like yeah. you want to like really lock down and say like, okay, we've got this really cool thing. Now it's time to like, let's build now it we, Yeah, now we need to yeah. build on top of it kind of. Right. And so like at that point, that's when you're ready to start sort of adding some types or maybe some library definitions. Or, yeah. In some sense, catching type errors is almost like not the common case, right? Typically, even when you prototype or when you show stuff, because you are backed with tests and you you are kind of a reasonable programmer, typically you wouldn't have too many type errors. 
it's when you are trying to change the code you or anybody else even even personally if you if you have you're the only one who who wrote some code and you showed around your prototype and now yeah everybody likes it and you want, uh, need to now now extend it at that point you would have to rethink okay i was using this data structure and i need to change it like add a field here or whatever and so you're changing the representation of what's going on and now you would have to remember to update every other program point that relies on that change in representation and having a type system basically just guide you through that process say that okay you you do some work and then you leave it up to me to tell you that what what work is remaining and then i'll i'll just remind you that okay go change your program there as well that backup is uh, very nice to have so even for personal programs i would say you know uh, projects start out small then then time passes then you forget stuff and uh, tests are never that complete anyway so uh, having a type system kind of helps in that sense I'm in total agreement to what you even said earlier about using it as like documentation. Yeah. Just maintaining the code base over time. So one of the great things about JavaScript is that the community is so large and there's such a large repository of third-party code that you can use. How does Flow work with that? Flow supports uh, library definitions for similar to TypeScript. So TypeScript has this standard format called .d.ts for anybody who's already familiar with TypeScript. And basically what that lets you do is it lets you sort of describe the interface of like a package or a library. So you can say like, I don't know, it's an example, like React has a create element method and so forth. And this is what the types are. And it can sort of sit separate from the code itself so that the library authors can decide whether they want to put those types in the code directly or not. And if they don't, then somebody else can come along and kind of describe the interface for you. So we've, we've actually been, uh, we have a very similar syntax to what TypeScript does and we want to get closer to it. It's like on that stack of Q things to do, right? Sure. Uh, But yeah, I mean, basically that's sort of the answer to like, how do we type third party libraries that aren't typed themselves? Sure. And, and flow, comes with some of those already there's stuff for some of the browser apis and like the node core or standard yeah. library and, and there's some react stuff in there too yeah absolutely. how much i guess this is kind of an aside how much of the react support and flow is just in that library definition and how much is built into the tool itself <laughs> that's that's a very good question and yeah we would be happier like answering it now than maybe a few months back so right now there's very very little stuff that we special case inside flow uh to to recognize react but it was not that and not not the case uh, for a long time but now yeah so basically we read off that library definition and all of the newish kind of es6 react style um, code is completely checked using that library some of the old stuff uh, is still special case inside the checker, so we still know what React.create class means internally. But again, like if you're using JSX or some other stuff, it's it's all routed to the standard React.create element uh, calls, so it just picks up the types from there and and other stuff. So yeah, so we just set up. So the only special case we have right now is we recognize create a React.create class specially. We create a class like you would in ES6 explicitly. So so all of the parts of that class are set up properly and then we just let it go. Yeah, I mean, like Avic has spent like what? Like a good couple of months trying to take this special casing and generalize it and it's it's pretty awesome. That's great. That's really cool. I'm sure that makes uh, people that use other frameworks or, or authors of other frameworks happier too, that they can yeah. get kind of first class support for their stuff in Flow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I have one more question, and it's also like kind of a criticism. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I, I really like Flow, and it's been great to use. We've been using it for a couple months now. My complaint is that it's really hard to find out what it does and how to use it. The documentation on the website is pretty sparse, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and totally. I've spent a lot of time in IRC where people are very helpful, but it's yeah. like, oh, you asked for the magic keyword and now you know the secret <laughs> undocumented feature that is really helpful for your everyday use. Yeah, um, that's totally fair criticism. And you've uh, answered a lot of my questions actually, I think. You're Jeff in IRC, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. So you've been really helpful, but is there a way 
to I should kind probably of... just be writing docs instead of helping you. Well, no, I guess I wanted to, <laughs> instead of, like, give a sick, no, no, I... like, pile driver burn, is there a way for the community to help with that documentation process? Well, or... yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So this is all open source. We would actually, like, uh, some people have actually gone and fixed, uh, like, typos or some small things like that but you can totally like go and edit documentation if you if you want it's a github, uh, GitHub pages it's a github pages thing yeah and literally like the last time we probably touched the documentation was around open source time which is like five or six months back which is not ideal at all and the reason we have got away with it for so long was mostly like people like jeff being responsive on irc and internally we use like groups and people just ask questions there and they get the answers there but obviously, this is not uh, not ideal for everybody. So we should set aside some time to kind of update the talks. Yeah, uh, this is like a known problem, right? Lots of people complain. We kind of we know that we need to do it. It's just yeah. I've actually been meaning to like I can take some responsibility here because I keep saying I'm going to go update the website and haven't done it. But certainly, if anybody wants to help out or write some docs of something that you found out and send a pull request, as simple or not simple as please do it, because we'll. I would gladly help you do that. Cool. Do you have any more questions or any things that you wished we would have talked about that we haven't talked about yet? Mm, I don't think so. No. This has been fun. Yeah, yeah this, is, this has been really helpful. I hope, I mean, it's hard for me because I, I use Flow and I like it. And I'm trying not to play insider baseball too much <laughs> and just like talk about things that are only interesting to me. Yeah. But I hope it's been helpful for people that are maybe new to it. It's I really great. You should it. check it out. I guess I'll throw out that we, you know, like you said, we hang out in IRC too. So if anybody ever has more questions or whatever, that's a good place. We can put the IRC, I guess, on the show notes maybe. Or... Yeah, we'll definitely do that. It's a really good channel because even though 90% of what is said there goes over my head, it's still really helpful for people that are beginners and who don't know ML or OCaml or type yeah. systems or <laughs> computers yeah. or how they got there even. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's been really helpful. Great. So if there's nothing else, we can move on to the picks. Amy, do you want to start us off? Sure. My first pick, it's been tweeted out a bunch, so uh, people may already be aware of this, but it's a really good article on promises that uh, someone sent me like two weeks ago. I think it was in like the JavaScript Weekly, but I was checking it out before that. Um, but it starts off with four different examples, and he asks whether or not you know the difference between those four, and then... Um, just at the end, it will go through step-by-step uh, step what the different promise patterns are doing and some gotchas and mistakes. So I'm going to put a link to that article. And then my second pick, I usually eat really healthy, but I was on vacation last week and ate at my favorite restaurant called Jim and So if anybody is ever in the South and they want good Southern barbecue cooking, that is my second pick. And I'll put a link to that restaurant. You totally should Google if you're ever in the South, if you're close to one of these places, because it's amazing. And that's it. Cool. I'll, uh, I'll make myself go next. So I have three picks. They're all kind of computer related. I don't have any music picks this week. Sorry. Uh, the first two are a related series of blog posts about big data systems, but they're, it's, it's a really interesting look at them. So these three researchers look at all these really high scale, like systems that use tons of computers clustered together, like Hadoop and Spark and Graph Lab and all these kind of like stream processing systems. And they compare their performance to the performance of just running some algorithm that he hand writes on his own computer. And it turns out that it's and an, in a single thread. So there's these systems that have a thousand computers in a cluster, uh, massively parallelized, like huge computing power. And it's like five times faster to just run it in a single thread on his own computer. So it's kind of a, a look at the costs of these large scale computing systems and how sometimes the abstractions they give you don't actually buy you a lot of performance and you can get a lot faster performance off of simpler things. I thought it was really interesting. And the two blog posts are related. They're both about the same topic. And then the third pick is a talk called What We Think We Know About Software Engineering. It was from 2010. So I, I think it's been around for a while, but it was new to me. It's at a, a conference and it's a, I think it's a professor who does research in software engineering. And he just talks about how a lot of the conventional wisdom that we pass around about productivity and estimation and, and how to build good software and how we know how long it takes and how we know how 
good people are at programming is just totally made up. And in software engineering, you can get away with just, if you sound smart, you can say a thing and then people believe you. Where if you were in medicine, you couldn't just say like, yeah, if you uh, rub these two sticks together on your leg, then it heals your broken bone. And then, oh yeah, I mean, that wouldn't get published in a journal, right? But in, in computer science, you can just say like, agile methodologies help you develop software faster. Citation, <laughs> I just thought of that. And it sounds good. And like, that's your source. And, and people accept that. So it's kind of a look at where this information comes from and how we can find out what we actually know about it. It's really good. Uh, those are my picks. Let's cool. see. Jeff, do you want to go next? Yeah, I'll go next. So my first pick is time travel debugging, uh, which is this concept that Microsoft just built for, I think, their new Edge browser, which is awesome. If you haven't heard of this before, it's the coolest thing ever. Basically, I'll send a link, and there's like the MSDN like has like a demonstration on video. But basically, you can normally when you set like a a breakpoint in your JavaScript program, you can only kind of step forward from there because the developer tools haven't been keeping track of the state of the program before you hit that breakpoint, because that would be crazy, right? There's tons of state that happens up until the point where you want to break. Uh, time travel debugging actually lets you sort of go back in time from the point where you want to observe a bug and see how you got into that state. It's just really cool. Uh, you have to watch the video if what I said didn't make any sense. But it's really neat, and it's pretty crazy that they're building this and shipping it in a sane manner. My second pick is uh, OCaml, which is what Flow is written in. And I picked it because I learned it when I kind of came to Flow. And it seems a little daunting when you first approach it, but it's actually really not that bad. There's a really good website that's free, and I actually use it as reference all the time. I like learn from it, and I still go back and reference it a lot. I'll send a link here too, but it's realworldocaml.org. It's actually, uh, it's a really neat language because it's like strongly typed, but you don't, you actually typically don't really write type annotations, which is also cool because it kind of matches with our philosophy with flow too. You can, but you don't have to. It compiles to bytecode or it compiles to native and it's bytecode is like not even jitted. So it's like interestingly consistent perf. So anyway, it's just a really interesting language and it's kind of not what you're usually used to if you come from sort of C, Java, Python, JavaScript style languages. And Jeff, did you know that it also has time travel de debugging? And it does. <laughs> it has time travel debugging, which is the only reason that, no, no. But yeah, it has, it's, it's also very cool. Is the tagline for OCaml, like, OCaml, easier than Haskell? <laughs> it is easier than Haskell. Because that's, that's how it fits in my head. It's like, this wacky language, not as hard as Haskell. Totally, that's, that's a great tagline. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, comparing infinity is good. <laughs> <laughs> and then I guess my last pick is, like, probably not that obscure, but the band Muse is my favorite band ever, and they're just awesome. If you haven't heard of Muse, you should listen to Muse. I like Muse. Yeah. Great. Avik, do you want to give us your picks? Uh, sure. So there's this blog that I occasionally read. Uh, it's called scottanson.com slash blog. This is by a guy who started out being a grad student. Well, before that, I don't know what he did. But uh, he was a grad student in Berkeley, and now he's a professor in MIT. He does a bunch of totally obscure stuff in computational complexity. He deals with hard problems like proving p not equal to np and these are these are like totally inaccessible to a lot of uh, people but the best thing about that blog is that this guy is a super is 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 a great explainer of things so while these concepts are totally abstract uh, he has a bunch of stuff on his blog that explains them in the simplest of ways so that you can follow along and uh, and he's a pretty a pretty entertaining writer himself. He's he's pretty witty and he kind of writes about his travels and his work as well occasionally. He has some course material that is also it seems like, you know, he's he's great fun to like for, for students as well because Again, during his teaching, he explains these uh, concepts like quantum computing and so on using such nice examples that, you know, it kind of makes me want to emulate some of that when, when we are explaining some of our stuff uh, to other people because our stuff is so much easier than what he's trying to uh, explain. So that's that's one thing. The other thing is I'm really into cooking and so on and I really love good food. And I found this great show recently on Netflix called Chef's Table mm -hmm. that is basically a documentary 
a set of doc uh, like it has six episodes and it profiles uh, six chefs who are like chefs of uh, some of the world's best restaurants not the top but maybe you know 10 15 17 ranked uh, stuff and they are, all all of these chefs are very different in in their personalities and the thing that's different about the show is that instead of going directly into the food aspects of things uh, they actually do this profile on the chefs themselves and their lives and what kind of drove them to do what they are doing and uh, focused a lot of uh, how how their creativity came into place and what kind of incidents in their in the childhoods kind of reflected into some of the most celebrated dishes that they that they kind of design and so on so it was pretty cool it like uh, this is like a journey from you know the coldest parts of of sweden to to kind of japan and some other uh, places as well so uh, it was kind of a really fun watch for me that's really cool well thank you so much for being here it's uh it's been really enjoyable for me i feel like i've learned a lot and i've also ha- i have a long list of new things to learn which is <laughs> how i know i liked the episode thank you yeah thanks for talking this is yeah. cool thanks yeah. thanks everybody for listening we will talk to you next week see ya This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit c a c h e f l y dot com to learn more. Do you wish you could be part of the discussion on JavaScript Jabber? Do you have a burning question for one of our guests? Now you can join the action at our membership forum. You can sign up at javascriptjabber dot com slash jabber, and there you can join discussions with the regular panelists and our guests.